Hey, let's begin this morning with this big idea. I'll have three big ideas, but here's the first one. And it's this. It'll come up on the side screens uh, in your program. The notes are there. And uh, let's go ahead. Let's pull up this first one. And uh, that's good. Here we go. Uh, There is usually a gap between what we hope for and what we experience. There is usually a gap between what we hope for and what we actually experience. This week, my uh, beautiful wife, Jennifer, and I celebrated 20 years of marriage. You know, in the first celebration, there was one guy that went like this. Sat back there. Like, I don't care if you've made it one month, one year, 10 years. You should always celebrate when you're making it if you're married. And uh, so I asked Jennifer, I was like, you know, honey, to me, it feels like it was just like yesterday. And uh, she said, you know, for me, it feels like it's 40 years. Um, So it's either 1994 or 2034. I don't know where we're at, but we're somewhere in between. And as we were thinking about our marriage this week, I was reminded of our honeymoon. And I was thinking about all the preparation that I had put in uh, to this. I had uh, talked to a lot of different people and finally landed on the spot, the place that I thought would be the best. And we went to Jamaica Mon. And uh, we went to Sandals Resort. And what was really cool was that the three days before we had to leave, we actually went to Chicago, kind of recovered from the wedding. And when we got to Chicago, I surprised her by going to see a Broadway musical, uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, with this guy, Donny Osmond. Who can't love Donny? You know what I mean? And so we went there, and then we did a, 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 a horse and carriage ride, did a sunset cruise. I mean, it was romantic, and everything was heated up everywhere, uh, everywhere, if you know what I mean. And uh, then finally, we got ready to head to Jamaica, and we get there, and I walk off the plane, and she was holding my arm. She's like, I love being married to you. I was like, I know, you know. And uh, I mean, I'm feeling like the king of the hill. Well, each particular night at this resort, there were different theme nights. And uh, one particular night was toga night. And they gave you some uh, sheets, and uh, they actually put the togas on. And um, I think we have a picture here of Jen and I. It'll come soon. So uh, it's toga night, and uh, we actually wrapped it around, and there we are, and uh, we had toga night. Now, on toga night, they took us to this little island that was off uh, the beach there. And, uh, we had limbo and we limboed all the way through the night. But by the end of the night, you know, I was just kind of done with all of this. And so we're walking to get on the little uh, boat that took us back, uh, to the beach. And I go, you know what? I am sick and tired of wearing this thing. She's like, what thing? I said, well, this dumb toga, I'm just done with it. And then she went like this, you mean the toga that I spent an hour putting it on because you didn't know how to do it, so we didn't look like idiots? And I'm like, yeah, I'm talking about that toga. And then all of a sudden, it was on like Donkey Kong, okay? I mean, we were at it with each other, going back and forth and back and forth, and we were mad and angry, and we got to the hotel room, and all the heat that was in that hotel room for all of these days ended up being freezer cold, and we turned our backs to each other for the first time in our marriage, and it was over. We had the fight. Well, I went to bed. I'm like, I don't care, you know, whatever. I've only been married five days, so hey, deal with it, you know. 
And uh, so I go ahead and I get woke up to this sound from the bathroom going. What we didn't know was that they had used tap water to wash the salad in. That's why I don't eat salad, folks. Um, I ain't going to get sick with dysentery. And I walk into the bathroom and here's my beautiful bride. She's just like embracing this toilet. And there is stuff flying out of her, you know, kind of stuff that you want to talk about at church. I mean, you know, it's just like just all over. And I walked in there. I was like, sirs are right treating her husband like that, you know. No, I didn't really say that. I walked in and I grabbed, she had long hair. And so I pulled her hair back and I said, it's okay, honey. And she finished what she needed to do there. And uh, then we went back to bed and I said, I was sorry. And, you know, we got everything kind of taken care of and we were good. And then it just hit me as I got into bed. I was like, God, I think you're showing me what marriage is going to look like. You know what I mean? Um, Because you, that's more like marriage, folks, than it is what we see uh, on television. You know, I began with this point, and it was this, that often there is a gap between what we hope for and what our expectation or and what reality actually is. Sometimes reality is better. But often when our dreams and reality collide, we just get disappointed. We get discouraged. We get disillusioned. Why do you think it is, folks? Why do you think there is such a gap between what we expect and what actually reality becomes? I looked at a book this week by uh, Mark Sayers. This is what he said. It is in the interest of those who saturate our world with media to paint an image of the world that is infinitely more appealing than the reality of our lives. But the catch is that the more we're exposed to the hyper-real message of the media, the more dissatisfied we become with our own lives. The hyper-real world shows us people whose lives are like ours, but better. The woman who uses the same shampoo as we use, but she is more attractive. The family who has the same amount of kids as we have, but they look happier and more satisfied. The guy who uses the same deodorant as we do, but manages to pick up girls who look like supermodels. The clear message is that we need to imitate the lives we see in the movies, in advertising, in lifestyle magazines, in music videos, and on television. Then we will be happy. We've been looking at a particular book of the Bible. It's in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. It's called Ephesians, and it's written by a guy by the name of Paul. Paul was in prison when he's writing this. And we've been looking at this letter uh, all week, or all, uh, all month. And uh, a lot of it that he talks about in this book talks about how we live. And what the expectation should be, and what our experience should look like. And so... Last week, if you remember, we said what Paul is telling Christians to live like is true, but that's not what we find in our society today. Most sociologists will tell us that if you looked at a Christian and you looked at a non-Christian, you don't really see a whole lot of difference in their lifestyle. Now, why do you think that is? Well, I think it is because of the empty promises of the media-saturated culture that seems more compelling than our Christian world. Let me say that again. That 
the empty promises of the media-saturated culture looks more compelling than the current vision of our Christian world. So what does Paul have to say about that? Well, let's go ahead and we'll jump into verse 15. And I'm going to look at two of the most controversial verses uh, in this whole chapter. Verse 15 says this. It will come up on the side screens. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And if you would, I'd like you to just underline that phrase. uh, The making the most of every opportunity. Verse 16. Just underline it. This phrase means that we need to live intentionally, not accidentally, to make the most of our time, to take advantage of every single moment that we live. Now, the the Greek word or the original word that's in this particular passage is uh, from for the word opportunity or time is the word that means kairos. And the word kairos uh, simply means this a moment an undetermined period of time in which something special happens. And this is the word. This is the understanding. And it kind of leads us to our next big idea, which is this. God is doing something special when? Now. Like God is doing something special right now. He is moving in our midst right now. Not tomorrow, not next week, not yesterday, but right now in this point of history. Verse 17 says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now in this text it talks about the Lord's will. It's not talking about God's specific will for your life. In other words, what job you should have, um, what house you should buy what car you should purchase, who you should get married to. Rather, what does God want in this Kairos moment is is saying that what is happening around us, like what is happening right now that God is in the midst of, that it's a, a special time. He's moving right now. In the book Divine Conspiracy, Uh, Christian author Dallas Willard says this, The purposes of God in human history will eventually be realized, of course. The divine conspiracy will not be defeated. But multiple millions of individual human beings will live a futile and failing existence that God never intended. What he's saying here is that for millions and millions of people, even millions and millions of Christ followers... They will go through their life and they'll be totally oblivious to what God is doing. They might come to church. They might read their Bible. They might pray for other people. But the reality is they never get into the flow of what God is actually doing around them. They're completely preoccupied with matters that are infinitely less important. A couple of weeks ago, my family and I went to a presentation for... Uh, this group right here, Maile Pa Maisha, a place of life. The JAR partners with a, a mission uh, group in Kenya. And what they basically do is it's an infant rescue mission. So they take 
little babies who have just been thrown to the side of the road or uh, in latrines, and they try to rescue them the best way they know how. And uh, the missionaries came back from Kenya, and they came to this area, and they invited us to a dinner. And it was at the Sirloin Stockade in Marion, Indiana. Now, to be quite honest, when uh, I first found out it was going to be at the Sirloin Stockade, if you love the Sirloin Stockade, God bless you, but I don't. I don't like smorgasbords. When I go to a place and I have to spend so much money, I want someone to actually cook my food, like, right at the time, and then bring it to me, and then I enjoy my dinner. And uh, the second reason I'm not a big fan of Sirloin Stockade is because my sister used to work there, and she told me the story of how she would take her socks out of the washer sometimes and couldn't get them all dried, and then would take it to some heating thing that they were heating the food with. Don't you think that'd make a little damper on what you would think about, you know? So I wasn't real excited to go to this place to begin with. And uh, we walk in, and usually there's like the smell of, you know, fried chicken. Like, I don't care who you are, you smell fried chicken. You're like, man, that's good. We walked in, and we smelled fried B.O. I don't know who was in there before us, but we walked in, and I mean, it was bad order galore. We get up there and we get our food. You know, we, you have to pay, you know, some outrageous amount for all this food that you're never going to eat anyways, but they charge you anyways. And so I'm like, man, we got to get to the room. So we finally get to the room. The B.O. goes away. We're sitting there and we walk in and my wife and I are at least 30 years younger than everyone in the room. And we brought our kids, a five-year-old and seven-year-old in this small dinky room. How do you think any five-year-old or seven-year-old is going to do, especially my monsters? Not well. I mean, they start taking jello. Things are flying in the air. They're running back and forth. You know, it's like, oh, here's the pastor's kids. Yeah, we know. They're messed up. All right, get over it, you know? So finally, we get everything done. And at this point, I'm just kind of on the edge. And the guy gets up and he gets ready for the presentation. I'm like, man, I pray to God that this is not very long. We've done our Christian thing. We've already been here. And so he starts in and I wrote it down because it, uh, it took my breath away. This is what he said. They put up a picture like this little baby here, but much more malnourished. And said, this is a picture of Talitha. She was dropped into a pit latrine by her mother moments after birth. When we first saw her, she reeked like a latrine, human feces all over her, and maggots were crawling out of her nonstop. We cared for her the best way that we knew how, but 48 hours later, she died. You ever had a moment of clarity before? When you just kind of realize, like in one single moment, Everything becomes clear. And you realize, like in that moment, exactly what's important. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, Chris, you need to stop. You need to just shut up. 
If you're complaining about everything else around you, and on your lap is your daughter Shiloh, who is healthy with everything that she needs, and there is more food in this place than many people in other countries will ever have in their entire life, you need to shut up. And you see, folks, all of a sudden, you ever have those moments where everything that you know gets clear and you find out very quickly what is really important. Now, the text says here, how do we understand the Lord's will? What is God doing in this time? Let's look at this next verse, verse 18. Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Don't you kind of find that ironic? Look at what he chooses to correspond two things with. Alcohol and being filled with the Holy Spirit in the same sentence. You think that's controversial? Yeah. There are churches that throughout history have fought, have fought argued over all kinds of things, have split over this particular verse. And these two issues, the issue of alcohol and the issue of the work of the Holy Spirit. Some scholars speculate why Paul would use this arbitrary metaphor. I mean, like, out of everything that he could have chosen, why did he choose drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit in the same sentence? Well, some believe that this is referring back to pagan worship practices during that day in which alcohol would be used with all kinds of stuff, there would be sexual uh, engagement, and there would be violent things that would happen as a part of the pagan religion ritual. Others said, well, in the Roman culture, uh, at that time, alcohol was just a part of normal, everyday life. And abuse of it, and uh, the rampant drinking of it just happened. Others would say, well, no, 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 this obviously goes back to Acts chapter 2 when Pentecost came down, when the Holy Spirit came upon the people and they moved in different ways and people thought they were drunk. But regardless of the perspectives, Paul is contrasting being intoxicated with being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing you have to do is that there is a literal command in this particular verse. Do not get drunk on wine. That's why it says, do not get drunk on wine. Being intoxicated, folks, is sin. My mother's mom uh, died when she was nine years old. And my grandfather, who I never met, he died before I was born. But he became a single parent overnight of three kids. And he wasn't able to do everything. And they were a a fairly poverty-stricken family, and so he had to kind of, um, you know, house them out uh, to different aunts and uncles. The only problem is that on his side of the, or on my uh, grandmother's side of the family, all the aunts and all the uncles, every single one of them, folks, were alcoholics. And alcohol has always represented an enormous amount of pain uh, for my mom because of her, her past and of her family history. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, that drinking alcohol is a sin. It doesn't say that. But being intoxicated or being consumed by alcohol, clearly, if you're a Christ follower, doesn't match. Now, for some people, it's not best to drink alcohol at all. 
For others, they have to drink it in a balanced, moderated, controlled kind of manner. It's always interesting, uh, since I'm a pastor, people will come up to me many times, and they'll be, all right, now I know, like, you're not supposed to get drunk, but, like, how many drinks should I have before I don't sin? And then they'll say, is it two? Is it three? Is it five? Is it ten? Well, it's different for every person. The Bible doesn't say, okay, here's the sin chart on how many you should have, and then once you get to here, you better stop. It doesn't do that. But if you're a follower of Christ, folks, you should know when you are to stop. So wine maybe at your dinner is one thing. Ten wines at your dinner might be something different. Now, Paul goes on and he uses this word debauchery. Now, it just doesn't even sound very nice, does it? Well, what does that term mean? By definition, it is the excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. This is what I found out. If you look at that word in the original language, you know what it means? Wasted. Wasted. In other words, it just says, don't get wasted. Don't get wasted. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your time and energy trying to numb yourself to the awareness of life. Because that's what we do, typically when people drink alcohol. They want to numb themselves from the awareness of their life. So with this unique association of getting drunk and being filled with the Spirit, maybe what Paul was trying to say is that some of you are taking the bottle for the same reasons that you should be turning to the Holy Spirit, allowing yourself to be filled with the Spirit. So Paul says, don't get drunk. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, don't you see, folks, this is like two polar opposites of themselves. One commentator said this, drinking excessive amounts of alcohol makes you less aware of reality. Being filled with the Spirit makes you more aware of reality. Now, the text doesn't say be full of the Spirit. It says to be filled with the Spirit. So it's this concept that there is this constant flow. It's like when you turn on the shower and the water goes and it just goes and goes and goes. And let's say that you, uh, before you get to the shower, it's already running. You take your shower, you get out, and you just leave it on. It's a constant flow. That's what this is talking about. That you are constantly being filled with it. It never stops. Now, I've been around church my entire life. I was raised a PK, a preacher's kid. And every time that you talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, it's some of the most misunderstood themes and ideas in all of Scripture. So let me just share with you a few questions uh, that I've seen before. Here's the first one. What is being filled with the Spirit? What does that mean? What is being filled with the Spirit? Well, this means that when we are filled with the Spirit, we come to a complete surrender to Christ. We say, hey, I'm totally open to being used by you. I surrender all of myself to you. To be filled with the Spirit implies that there's this freedom that God can occupy every part of your life. What area of my life do you want, God? Everything's fair game. I'm open to whatever it is. You're available. 
When you hear a prompting, you say, God, if you give me a prompting, I'll go and I'll do it. If you give me a word, I'll go and do it. If I get a whisper from you to do something, God, I'm available to do whatever it is. Now, folks, I know when I'm being filled with the Spirit, when I'm filled with the Spirit, and I also know when I'm not being filled with the Spirit. When I'm filled with the Spirit, I care about the things that God cares about. I'm sensitive to people. I'm kind and loving. I'm patient. I'm understanding. I'm gentle. I see the world as God sees the world. That's when I'm in the Spirit. When I'm filled with the Spirit. When I'm not, I become busy and aloof. I'm short-tempered and I'm easily frustrated. Second question. Some people will ask, don't all believers already have the Holy Spirit? Well, there's three passages you can look this week if you want. I put them in the outline for you. John 14, Ephesians 1, and Galatians 3. They all highlight that the Holy Spirit indwells in believers. That it's permanent. That once you turn your life to Christ, that His Spirit is placed in you, and it's there. It's permanent. If you are really a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells in you. But it's very important to understand the distinction. That there is an indwelling of the Spirit. And the second thing is, there is a filling of the Spirit. Two different things. We all can be, we, we all have the indwelling if we're a follower of Christ, but we're only filled when we turn our lives completely to Him. Third question. Can anyone be filled with the Spirit? Well, yes. As long as they're a Christ follower. The Holy Spirit is a gift to those who choose to follow Christ. So that leads to the next question. Why are some Christians not filled with the Spirit? Why are some Christians not filled with the Spirit? We looked at this last week in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. It says this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You ever realize that? That you yourself can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. First Thessalonians 5.19 says this. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. You just don't want to do those things. Now, if you do do this, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit leaves you. It's indwelling. It's in you. It's permanent. You just become less available for God to work in your life. You just become less available. If he wants to do something, he can't because you're not connecting in the flow of what his spirits do. A couple months ago, it was a Ball State's graduation. And my wife, Jennifer, had to uh, work on a Saturday. And so I had to uh, feed the children. And I contemplated about it, and I put a menu together. I was like, man, we're going to make this special. And then all of a sudden, we went to Puerto Vallarta. And uh, we had a Mexican feast. And we walked in, and they seated us. And if you ever have kids, I'm sure you've experienced this before, or you know kids at all. If you don't have kids, this probably really frustrates you. It frustrates parents, too, so it frustrates all of us. Kids are just frustrating, basically. <laughs> but you get there and you get seated. And immediately, what's the first question they ask? I got to go to the bathroom. Can I go to the bathroom? 
You're like, seriously? There were three bathrooms at our house. You could have gone to any one of them. Why do we have to go to this one? So I go there, and you know I'm the guy, so I can't go in the girls' restroom. But there are five and seven, so they don't want you in there because they're too big now. And so I get to there. I let them in. I have to stand at the door. They come back out. We walk back to our table, and I notice that there are a couple college students that had been seated in the booth beside us, and they're drinking margaritas, probably, you know, celebrating graduation. And we walk, and I'm walking by, and all of a sudden, I hear a cuss word fly out. It wasn't just any cuss word. It was an F-bomb. So I walk by, and I'm thinking, my kids don't listen to me, so they probably didn't listen to that, you know? So we walk in, we sit back down, and I'm thinking things will get better. And all of a sudden, the F-bombs just keep flying more and more. So I get up out of my seat in a spirited way, not a spiritual way, okay, there's a difference, but in a spirited way, and I said, hey, can you watch your mouth because I have a 5-year-old and 7-year-old here, and we don't want to hear it. I sat back down. All of a sudden, the one who had already drinking or had already drank half of his margarita goes, he says this. I wrote it down. Well, if he doesn't like my blanking language, why doesn't he move his kids? Now, at that point, I get up with a little bit more aggressive moment. And I said, if you don't shut your mouth, I'll shut it for you. We'll go outside in the parking lot. Don't encourage this, okay? (laughs) You'll get the point here in a second. So they don't say anything for a while. And finally, at the end of our dinner, and I'm heated the whole time, like, I'm just waiting, you know? You you, you heard about girls gone wild? Wait till you see pastors gone wild. (laughs) And so uh, I'm just waiting this whole time. And uh, finally, he... He comes over and he apologized. He said, I'm sorry. Now I get home and uh, I tell my wife, I don't think it's a big deal. You know, I'm just, hey, I'm being a man. I'm trying to stick up. She goes, now what if that person would have said, well, let's go. (laughs) I mean, what was I going to do? Hey, Jordan and Shiloh, daddy's got to go out to the parking lot. Here's my cell phone. If I'm not back in 10 minutes, call 911. Actually, I'm going to dial it for you now because I'm sure it'll be needed. I'm not proud of my attitude on that day. I was not in the flow of the Holy Spirit. But here's the greatest news, folks. When you get angry, when you get frustrated... When you get agitated, it's only one small step to get back into the flow again. And you confess and you say, God, this is not where I want to be. This is not what I want to do. I want to be in your flow. And you know what that's like, don't you? Some of you got real holy looks like right now. I can't believe a pastor just did that. (laughs) I've seen some of you come in here in cars before. You're about ready to kill each other before you walk in. Then somebody gets your parking spot. Someone goes in there. You're like, oh, my goodness. Then you get in church and you're like, these are our seats. Like, why is someone sitting in our seats? You know? And then, so don't go there with me. But here's the news, folks. Even when you quench the Holy Spirit, it's only one step to get back into the flow of things. 
Where you just say, God, this is not the person I want to be. This is not the way that I want to act. I confess it to you right now. I want to be a person who follows you. I want to have your presence in my life. God, I want to be in your flow. And there are some Christians, folks, that are not filled with the Spirit. And the reason is, is because there's something in their life that they knowingly have been holding back. Some people, maybe some of you, have unresolved conflicts with people in your life. And you're chosen not to resolve it. You just ignore it. And you close yourself off. Some people are making really bad decisions right now with sex. And they're in an unmarried, sexually active relationship. Some people are habitually looking at things online. Some people are shopping even when they've already maxed out three or four credit cards. And you can do all these things. But you will not experience the filling of the Holy Spirit. There are some people who have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They've just ignored the church. This is the image that I have for people that ignore the church. It's like going to a wedding and you're there. And the scripture tells us that uh, Jesus is the bride and the church or Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. And just think, you go to a wedding and you're sitting there and the groom comes down and you're all for it. And then the bride comes down and you get up and you walk out. And that's what's happening with so many people when it comes to the church. They just walk away from it. It doesn't mean that your sins aren't forgiven. It just means you're not going to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit filled in your life. Because this is where God chooses to meet with his people. He meets in other places all the time. He can meet with you anywhere. But when you come to a gym, it's not a gym anymore. It's God's house, and he wants to speak to you. And I pray that he is with some of you right now. There's some people who, uh, they get so focused on getting married or pursuing the right relationship that they're just not filled with the Spirit. Some people get so fixed on their kids' activities. They're not here today. You know why? Because they're at a soccer field or they're at a baseball field or some other field. And they're trying to live through their kids, but they are not filled with the Spirit. And their kids may never be. Some people uh, have so much pride and arrogance in their life. And Scripture tells us what pride and arrogance is sin. But again, folks, whatever that thing is, all you got to do is take one step immediately, right when you're going through it. Don't wait until you get to church. Do it in the moment. Just one step and get back in the flow and say, God, this is not who I want to be. God, help me. Give me power right now. Fifth question. Well, what if you don't feel anything? Shouldn't you feel something when you're filled with the Spirit? Maybe you've had this experience before. You're watching television. You get to a religious show where the lady's got this big poofy hair and caked on makeup. And you see people crying or laughing or spinning around. And you think, well, that must be what it is. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of that. For some people, that works, but it doesn't necessarily work for everybody. And 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says this. We live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. 
You see, the problem with the church today is that some people never get any emotion whatsoever. And some people don't feel like they're even connected to God if they're not totally emotive and experiencing all kinds of things within the emotion. Because then they feel that nothing's happened. It wasn't even worth going to church today if I didn't have some big emotional moment. You see, folks, you cannot live your life directed exclusively by your feelings because they are completely unreliable. Your feelings lie to you all the time, don't they? My feelings can change by the weather. My feelings can change by what I've eaten, by how much sleep that I've had, by circumstances. And throughout the Bible, there is not a specific feeling that someone should have to authenticate whether or not they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people are more emotional. They're more emotive in nature. I am. My wife tends to be more of an introvert. She focuses in. Both of those things are important. And how we're filled, God is bigger than both of them. Sixth question. How long does it take to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Forty-five minutes. I had someone actually pull me aside one time, and uh, they said, you want to be filled with the... I was like, yeah, I'm ready, like right now. They said, it'd probably take about 45 minutes. I was like, well, if it takes you 45 minutes, then I don't think I want what you got. You know what I mean? Because sometimes, I don't know about you, I need it like instantly. I need a moment like right in the middle of that, God, help me to watch my word. And that's what happens. It can be instant. Every time you say, God, I'm opening my life. I want to be filled by you. Fill me up, God. Regardless of what you've done or what you haven't done. When you confess sin and then you say, God, fill me up. He fills you when you're a follower of Christ. And whether you've been a Christian for a minute or 50 years, when you open your heart again, even if it's been closed off, when you open it up again, the Spirit of God fills you. Last question. Is it possible to be filled with the Spirit all the time? Yes, it is possible if you never sin. It's possible if you never sin. I've never known anyone. If you do sin, though, it's not possible to be filled with the Spirit because it's a constant flow. What were you talking about? It's constantly flowing. Like I said, when you sin, folks, basically there's a stream of God's Spirit flowing. And every time you sin, you choose to get out of it. But the... The stream keeps going. It doesn't stop. And you can renew your commitment, though. You can step back into the flow anytime, and you can renew your commitment and be spirit-filled and be spirit-led. You see, God is already working all around us, folks, and it's just for us to jump in what he's already doing. God's already working. He's working right now. He's working in your life. He's working around you. He's working in the church. He's working in families. He's working in the world. And we just need a heightened sense of being filled through his spirit. So we're aware of that. Henry Blackaby in his classic book, Experiencing God, said this. You must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he's doing. See, it's not this kind of thing where you get God and you say, hey, God, follow me. God's already working. He's already moving. We just jump into the flow of whatever he's doing. Another writer put it this way. I don't ask God to bless what I do. I pray he will help me to do what he blesses. He's already blessing things. 
If there really is a constant flow of stream that is available to followers of Jesus, then God is already working around us. We don't have to make it up. We just have to flow in his sink, to be led by it, to be controlled by it. Last thing. Big idea. Something beautiful happens when we let the Spirit work through us. Something just beautiful happens when we let the Spirit work through us. I read a story this week about a Christ follower who went to IHOP and he ordered some pancakes. He got the pancakes. Uh, the server that was waiting on him was a young woman in her 20s, uh, attractive uh, girl. And, uh, but he noticed when he looked at her eyes, they just seemed like they had gone through some tough stuff. She looked weary. She looked worn down. She looked tough. And as she brought the food and as they talked more, uh, he realized that she started sharing some of her story that she had gone through a life of being abandoned and abused and rejected. They finished everything and she came to give the bill and she looked up and she noted and he noticed that her teeth, some of her teeth were missing. Some of her teeth were kind of jagged. Some of them were kind of crooked. And he paid his bill and he left. But the next day he woke up and he just couldn't get this young girl out of his mind. And so he said, God, if you want to do something, I'm open to it. And he felt led by the spirit to get on the phone and he called all the orthodontists that were in the area. He called them and said, hey, there's a person. I don't know them very well, but this is what uh, the teeth kind of look like. I just wondered, ballpark, what would you tell me it costs to fix it? And the orthodontist gave different estimates and he finally got uh, the maximum amount that he would have to pay. And he didn't have enough money himself, but he put his money in. And then he asked a few of his other Christ-following friends to do it as well. And they put their money into a pool. And they finally came up with enough money to finally uh, fix her teeth. So he picks up the phone and he calls IHOP. He says, hey, I want to talk to, to this server. And she comes to the phone and he says, now there's no pressure, but I've called some orthodontists in the area and I figured out exactly what it would cost. And if you want to get your teeth repaired, you can do that. It's free. It won't cost you anything. You'll have a beautiful smile, but it's up to you. Now, folks, that doesn't mean that every single time we go around someone who has some messed up teeth that uh, we have to go ahead and pay for their orthodontia care, okay? doesn't mean that. I mean, wouldn't it be kind of a, a weird conversation starter? You go up to somebody and go, you got some messed up teeth. But I'm a Christian, so I'd like to be able to uh, pay for it. Probably not going to be very good. But this was so different because he was led by the Spirit. And then something beautiful happens. And she got her teeth fixed. And her life changed. And all for the glory of God. I know people here at the jar who have been led by the Spirit to actually just give their car away to someone who was in need. Multiple people have done that. Being led by the Spirit, I've seen people pay for medical bills for other people. Being led by the Spirit, I've seen one guy in our church who volunteers at one of the poorest uh, elementary schools in our community, and he teaches them how to do pottery, all free of charge. 
Being led by the Spirit, I saw a couple families one time take T-bone steaks and cook them outside the Muncie Mission and serve every single person there because they were led by the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit, I've seen people actually pay for marriage counseling for people's marriages that were headed towards divorce and they were saved and, and made whole because someone stepped up. I've seen people before in the early days decide we want to reach out to our community and on Christmas Eve they went to every single bar in Muncie because if you're at a bar on Christmas Eve by yourself, you're lonely. And they went to every single one. They sang Christmas songs and they passed out cookies to everyone. Being led by the Spirit, I saw a couple uh, adopt an inner city kid. Even though they were uh, at the age where their kids were out of school, they were out of the house, they were ready for empty nest, and they adopted an inner city kid. And now he has a different life. I remember someone one time who paid for the bill of a couple who had a stillborn death, paid for the whole funeral, went out and paid for the marker so that the couple would know that they had a child. And I've seen multiple people like you who have walked across driveways, who have walked across offices, who have walked across factory floors, to build relationships with people who were far from God, to let them know that they were loved. An entire family, some of you know who you are, your entire life has been changed for eternity because someone chose to take a walk and they were filled by the Spirit. Folks, something just happens when we let the Spirit work through us. And so I just want to close by asking you this question. Do you need to be filled again with the Spirit? Have you allowed yourself to be occupied with things of the world? And maybe today is the day that you're like, you know what? I need a new filling of the Spirit. I need it. So I'm going to pray right now for myself. I want to be refilled refreshed today in this moment. Maybe you're not even a Christian. Someone just drug you here today. You've listened to everything. You're like, all right, the thing about him getting up in somebody's grill about cussing to his kids, I get that. But everything else, you're not so sure. But now all of a sudden, you're kind of left with a moment in time, right in this moment, right in this time. You get to choose what you're going to allow your life to look like? What flow are you going to jump into? But today, if God is calling you again to be filled, we're going to close with the song of surrender. And we're all going to sing it if you feel like this is what you want today. That you would be refilled again as you surrender your one and only life. Christ. And if you've already done it, that you do it again. You say, I want a refilling. God, as far as I know, I want to be used by you. I open myself completely to you to be used. So I'm going to invite you to stand as uh, we sing this song of surrender.